Welcome to In the Sick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast. And uh, this week, um, I'm Colin Lambert, and I come to you from a very different world to what we had maybe even two weeks ago. Um, I am also working from home, as I'm sure many of you are. Um, so this week, we're just going to dive in with our guests. We're not going to do any preambles from me. I think there's so much to talk about. So I'm um, delighted to be joined um, for the second time on the podcast by Rob Loft, founder and CEO of Harvey Loft um, Consultants. Um, welcome to the podcast, Rob. Interesting times. <laughs> yeah, hi, Colin. Um, definitely interesting times. Uh, pretty unprecedented. Uh, like you say, everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm at home myself as well and kind of dealing with some of the uh, challenges that that, that presents, um, more so on an ongoing basis. So I'm pretty used to logging in from home occasionally, but I think logging in from home on, on a longer basis is one, a challenge for people as far as bringing sort of teams and meetings together and that kind of stuff, uh, but also, I guess, for the for the systems because more people that are logging on to these Citrix systems, etc., the more pressure they get put under. But so far, the ones that I've used haven't um, creaked and, and fallen over, so so it's good. <laughs> Don't tell them this early in the podcast, please. No, exactly. Do you know what my... <laughs> My wife said to me yesterday, she said, I oh, know I probably shouldn't say this because it's, it's tempting fate, but so far we've both been okay, haven't we, on our systems? We've just got really good internet or something. And I said, why did you say that? <laughs> That's going to give us hell for the rest of the week. <laughs> and no doubt our listeners are going to go, like, this is a bit, all of these things are just sounding a bit fuzzy. There we go. Yeah. Anyway, to business. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I thought, you know, let, let's try and kick off with, I mean, how have markets handled this? Sort of, and you could call it mayhem. I, mean, I made a point um, in a column on Monday, I think it was, that you know, in terms of FX, what we're seeing in, in terms of the moves back then is probably not even top ten in terms of like you know moves we're seeing. But then I kind of was shot down, not for the first time, I have to say, um, by the analysts in Touch FX who noted that if you take the average daily range on a three-week moving average basis. We are approaching like, you know, top three business in terms of markets. So without doubt on a sustained basis, this is really busy. We've seen bigger individual moves outside of flash crashes, but, um, on a sustained basis, we're seeing unprecedented sort of volatility nearly. Um, how do you think markets have handled it? I think generally, ob- ob- observationally, the markets have handled it pretty well. I mean, they're functioning. Uh, across the board, we, you know, we've obviously seen circuit breakers kicking off in the equities markets. I think the, the, the CMEs had circuit breakers going off, but that's what they're designed to do. So, it's, you know, it's by design that doesn't show that there's an issue. It just shows that, you know, there's some pretty extreme moves going on and, and, and volatility has massively spiked up. I think from, from what you can see, it's a positive for markets that they're they're functioning well from an FX point of view. They seem to be functioning well, and maybe as you kind of alluded to there, it may be that you're not so much getting, uh, say, a burst issue, but it's it's more a kind of a dealing with the flood. If there's just a, a consistent volume uh, of data coming through. But yeah, generally yeah. speaking, I think they've I think they've performed pretty well so far under obviously challenging conditions. 
I think it has probably also helped that the conditions themselves, like the price action, has kind of um, lured a few more speculators back into the market. So it looks more like the FX market did you know, maybe two decades ago when there were people there thinking, you know, there's money to be made in FX. The liquidity has always been the market's selling point, isn't it? You know, and the deepest, most liquid market in the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think maybe what we're also doing is luring a few more people in with different ideas, and that also helps bolster the market um, sort of stability or sorry, robustness is probably a better word. I think if you're sitting there wearing euro dollar at 114 and it's 109 a couple of hours later, you're probably not doing it stable, are you? Um, <laughs> in terms of, I mean, so in terms of the sort of the players out there, what about, the systems appear to have worked, but you know, you mentioned there, we were both mentioning there, like in terms of it seems to be more of a flood than a, than a throughput, throughput burst. What do players need to do to prepare for that? Because I have had one, you know, one bank say to me, look, you know, we had one, we had a, a, like a, I think it was a couple of minutes where it was 20% above their highest they've ever tested for in terms of ticket throughput. What do players need to do to prepare for that? Yeah, so, so, so for me, uh, the, so post SMB, uh, just generally over the last, few years so market data has has increased uh, significantly over the last few years so so liquidity providers have had to one scale up their tech but also implement strategies to handle that market data trade data isn't the issue the volume of trades compared to market data you know you're generally talking for an LP, the volume of trades is going to be, you know, potentially let's say the send tens of thousands. Whereas market data, you're talking yardage. So yeah. it's the market data that's the issue. But that's been an issue for a few years because you know you've obviously had fragmentation within the market. There's more. There were more ECNs out there. We've obviously had a bit of consolidation over over the last few years. But volume of market data has increased. People have had to look at their systems in the same way. Post SMB, people had to look at their systems, the circuit breakers, unit controls, all of that good kind of stuff. So I think people are pretty geared up for these types of moves. You will be employing or you should have already employed over the last few years things like dynamic throttling of market data. So, you know, you should have tested your system previously to see what you think you can handle. And then as you start to approach maybe, you know, I don't know, 70%, 80% of that, you start to throttle the feeds down. You will throttle some feeds more than other others. You know, not all market data providers are equal. You're going to be far more interested in, in this sort of situation in making sure that your ultra feed is up and running, maybe then potentially uh, slightly less significant ECN, you do things as well, uh, like scaling back the currency pairs that you're taking market data for. I know historically, uh, back in my, my previous role, we were looking at crosses because they produce a significant amount of, of, of data, like they produce more ticks. So mm-hmm. in, the, in, in, in times of high volatility, when you just need to be making sure that you're up and available, you're going to be looking at certain crosses in things like, you know, is it more important that you've got CAD-YEN or kind of 
get actually just the direct pairs or your euro dollar feed up and running. Yeah. You have to kind of make decisions like that. And some people will do be doing that from a manual perspective, i.e. asking tech, for example, to change configuration files. Other people will have already kind of coded these things in and said, okay, as we start to reach the 70, 80% of those peaks of, of what the system can handle, then dynamically start to scale back those currency pairs and, and throttle those feeds. I think those are some of the things that people can do or probably will have already done. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think this is, I don't think this is going to present a massive technical challenge per se. I think this is a people and logistics challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, and I guess actually then for, for a long-term Chicago goers to our Chicago conference, this means no more shit all which is a sad thing. Um, I'll explain to you later, Rob. <laughs> and, and it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's like, fragment, the fragmentation has created all this market data problem. The market data problem has been exacerbated in current markets. So therefore, we're talking about throttling back on, on market data from certain sources, which I totally understand. And I would suggest that probably what you do is you kind of throttle back on those that, are, that support last look. Because if you're going to get your market data, you might as well get it off firm pricing, might you? Um, but at the same time, the market volatility means that these platforms are going to throttle back on the data services, which you might look at it and go, well, actually, these might just, you know, this might be the death knell for these platforms if people are realizing they're not that important. And at the same time, they're recording, you know, maybe record results here, record volumes here record throughput, they're making more money than they've made since they set up, you know, maybe 10 years ago. It's an interesting paradox, isn't it? I mean, it's, who knows where that one will go. You yeah, exactly. And where you're mentioning the platforms there, that kind of makes me also think about, so within your technology, you need to obviously be looking at things like timestamps, because it may be that you you are fully kitted up from a from a hardware point of view. You've got all of these great strategies in place, but it could be that the bottleneck becomes the venue because maybe their technology isn't as good. So you'll also be looking yeah. at its platforms that have got the tech themselves to be able to cope with these types of volumes. Yeah. So, you know, you and need, we had you need reliable last week. Yeah, we had an instance last week, I think it was, when we were recording this only two weeks ago, as listeners are listening to this probably, um, where a platform, you know, to my understanding, had a few glitches around trying to get um, sort of trade data out there. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's an important point. I mean, generally speaking, the you know, you mentioned there the people in logistics. Now the sort of disaster recovery sites have all been put into place. Teams have been split. Um, you know, so your business con- continuity plans seem to be working. I guess. What's interested in me is how long do we think they've got to work for? We don't know that in terms of the coronavirus course, but as they go longer, do they get more strained? And what can we do as a business to sort of maybe, you know, kind of divert some of these challenges that are coming up? It's a, it's a really interesting one. I was, uh, I was, uh, boring my, my wife with this last night. We were kind of, Mate, in the current I've, working from home conditions, everyone's bored in their wife. <laughs> I've, I've already read divorce rates that are going to go through the roof. Just people are isolated together. So yeah, I was I was kind of uh, having having a bit of a, a rant probably, but 
it's a really interesting one with these BCPs. I think I think you know DR sites generally speaking were kind of designed for uh, you know uh, a bomb's gone off or the building's flooded or the power's yeah. out that kind of stuff. Not a virus situation. So one, I kind of sit there and think I'm, I'm not overly convinced from a local perspective how effective two sites are in this situation. You know, the probability of someone getting sick in either site is is probably relatively high. So, yeah, I don't know how long that becomes kind of a, an effective solution anyway. I think potentially, you know, firms that have got more of a global presence will be able to handle this a little bit better. So, for example, you know, as Hong Kong and China may, we're all waiting to see whether this lasts, come out of the woods, potentially you can start to get that 24-7 shift coverage from Asia rather than relying, for example, on two sites that you may have in London. And, you know, again, people people tend to have a site just outside of London. So you, you might be in Slough or something like that, or even two sites within London itself. So it's a really it's a really interesting issue to look at. I think, as you say, from from what I've seen and from what I've heard, generally the BCP plans have been effective, there's always going to be teething issues because it doesn't matter how well you fire drill when suddenly you've actually got to press the button in a in a real world scenario and get traders and support over to a building that's, you know, not exactly as well going to be as well maintained as, as the main site and certainly as people have had to make cutbacks cut in cost and stuff like that. So there's going to be logistical challenges, and I'm sure there's going to be teething issues. And even people might be wearing elements of of P&L on that, where where certain systems weren't configured correctly, that kind of stuff. So it's a challenge. I think the next challenge comes if and when we go to, you know, DEFCON lockdown. Yeah, that's only Italy and Spain. Yeah, because, I mean, working from BCP sites is one thing. If the government puts us in lockdown, which is, you know, if you read between the lines, is looking increasingly likely, certainly in London, then our traders, and it wouldn't just have to be traders, it would have to be key support staff like technology, for example, maybe some client services, that kind of stuff. Are they going to be assigned key worker status. If they're not, then that means work from home uh, for traders, which I understand, you know, some already are. So I know that banks and LPs are, are, are actively working with regulators and internally with their second line functions, such as control office and, and compliance to work out, okay, what are the conduct issues with allowing traders to trade from home and there will be you know obviously voice trading is far more of a challenge than if someone's just got to sit there and watch the auto yeah. hedger and pricing ticking away on a, on any platform yeah I, I kind of look at this and think to myself 
yeah, there's a few regrets here that a few, you know, banks in particular might have. I think the first one is, um, they're going to regret the fact that, you know, in a lockdown situation, flights to Asia Pacific where they want to be, um, may not be running. Secondly, they'll be regretting their underinvestment in Asia Pacific over the past, oh, I don't know, century maybe. Um, and then thirdly, they'll look at it and go, why the hell did I not get mobile trading on my, for my platform? I mean, there's a few banks out there that have done it and the mobile trading has gone through the roof. A couple of them. Um, I mean, one bank told me they were up like nearly 300% in terms wow. of trading and another, I think they were also up about coming up for 200% in terms of the number of users logging onto mobile now, you know, which tells you that the, the, the customer is saying, well, what do we do in this situation? Oh, they've got a mobile app. Great. Okay. Well, we'll rush it through. Um, you control one to the, you control, uh, question is an interesting one though, isn't it? Cause I mean, is we can have all these plans, but you do kind of lose that degree of control. And I guess you've also got to have that connectivity issue to make sure that, you know, the information is getting into the systems in the right, at the right time. If you happen to have like three traders in remote locations, all trade at the same time, you know, what's your latency on getting that, getting those trades into your platform? Um, I mean, I think as a like proprietary trader or hedger in the market, it's not as important. But to your point, if you're an LP, it's vitally important you have the latest data. And if you've got people working remotely, um, particularly on, as you say, on the voice side of it, or even mobile trading where there might be some links you're getting in, it becomes a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. So there's, there's a few points there that you've made all, all very valid. And it, yeah, it's, it's, there's the challenge of working from home from a system perspective. So in my, in my previous example, and as you've, you've mentioned there, if we're working from home via, you know, Citrix connections, how delayed uh, is the data that's, that's coming to you? Even if you're sitting there watching, uh, you're also hedging your pricing to make sure everything's okay uh, and your positions, that data may be slightly delayed. You're going to react uh, slower than you would in a normal situation because that data is being presented to you with X amount of latency. So these sort of issues are going to be presented and that's before the system potentially even starts creaking with too many people logging into it from a bandwidth perspective. But that's where I think this is such a unique situation that I don't think anyone, well, nobody has planned to this extent uh, they they couldn't possibly have. So I really think people are having to think on their feet and this is where you're going to, you know, systems start creaking and people are working from home, then you need to start to say, right, okay, certain people can log on during these times. These are key staff that need these systems up and running. Um, that kind of stuff. On the, on the mobile aspect that you mentioned I think that's really interesting and I just think that kind of feeds into personally this is only personal opinion this sort of event potentially changes society as a whole the way we work people are people are being sent home companies are having to get used to making sure that they've got reliable systems for that uh, from a from a trading point of view, people's trading patterns may change, i.e. how they look to connect. 
I'm not surprised that people still want to trade. You've only got to think from your own own kind of personal opinion. The other day, I was, you know, I called up my uh, IFA and was was kind of saying, right, look, let's let's talk about pension strategy here. Mm. We can an, an ISA strategy. We can sit here and cry, uh, or we can see the opportunity. I think lots of people will be seeing the opportunity because this is ultimately this is going to be a very, very painful but temporary shock to the system. And theoretically, we, none of us know how long this is going to go on for, but theoretically, no. when we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, you are going to see that kind of V-shaped pattern yeah. to, the, to the markets, you know. So you actually need to be, everybody, you know, you talk into sort of friends and family, everyone's sitting there saying, I wish actually I had a, a pile of cash sitting there where I could I could get into FTSE and some stocks and chairs and and, and people will mm. be doing that kind of cross cross asset because there is there is opportunity to be found there. This this is a temporary shock to the system. Yeah, I mean let's face it. I mean it's it's, it's it can't be understated, but it is still a, a virus and it has like a one percent kill rate or something like that. So. You know, that mm. that suggests that inevitably there would be a bounce back. I mean, the the I guess the other thing I suppose though is just thinking through my point a bit further. I mean, the mobile trading that's pretty good, but although the mobile trading that then probably becomes irrelevant if everyone's stuck at home because obviously the the institutions you would think would probably be shipping out technology to the home lines, which I think definitely brings in your problem with the bandwidth problem. Um, I wonder actually whether we might see a shift where they say. You know, control functions and vitally important, um, you know, PMs or whatever have the three or four screens set up in their spare room at home. But the sort of lower functions or those traders that are just doing some execution, maybe are not really taking decisions. They are given the mobile just to try and, you know, dilute that whole impact on the technology stack. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you know, I've, I've, I went out and, bought a, a new large screen myself just because it, I, I'm working from home at the moment now the wife's yeah. working from home as well because she, she also works in the bank so you know we needed extra screen space ourselves but yeah I guess yeah. really it's how can you set up a proper trading environment or um, at home either like you say for control functions yeah. or traders and yeah it's making sure that you kind of give it's horses for courses so exactly some people will be able to do that work on a mobile type application. Others will need, you know, a significant amount of uh, screen real estate to work. And kind of getting back to the control issues as well. Yeah, everything is the beauty of data is everything is kind of logged and audited these days. So even if you're working from home, from a conduct perspective, yes, there are going to be more conduct challenges when someone is working from home than if they're in an office environment. But everything you do, whenever you interact with the system, ultimately, if you're going to trade, if you're a voice trader, you're still going to be trading, for example, for an aggregator. You know, everything you do, your mm. keystrokes are going to be logged. So, and the control functions will be able to see that. You know, surveillance teams are still going to be able to look at their surveillance monitoring tools whether they're sitting at yeah. home or not. So I do think it presents a challenge, but I think, you know, the stage that we're at 
in this technical life cycle, if you want to call it that, from a data perspective uh, and from being able to view that data, even from control functions, I think we're a lot further down the road than we were even a few years ago. So I think the hard work that people have put in over the last few years on the back of you know, going right back to the financial crisis, really, with the amount of additional regulation we've had put in place with your methods and all of this kind of stuff. People's systems are, are, are sort of geared up for this eventuality, even though, you know, that wasn't at the forefront of their minds when they were, when they were doing this work. So, reg- so we finally found something that's actually the regulation of the last decade has actually helped us with. This is really good. <laughs> this is a all that all that pain and misery was worth it, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not sure I'm with you on that one, but yeah, I get a good point. Is your company interested in advertising in this spot or in sponsoring an In the Thick of It podcast and having a guest speaker appear with Colin? Email info at profit-loss.com and one of our team will contact you to discuss ideas. Okay, so let's get to the big question then. I mean, there's been a few suggestions around, and I have to say just a few, not many, um, that one option could be closing markets down. Now, you know, this morning actually a friend texted me saying he'd been talking to someone in the sort of retail industry saying that they didn't think we'd hit that sort of capitulation, full capitulation yet. Um, there were there were still buckets of risk in the system. So what do we think in terms of, like, you know, it, that true Armageddon scenario? I mean, can markets be shut down? Should they be shut down, do you think? It's, uh, you know, that, that really does fry my brain um, because, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine a world where they are, having yep. functioning markets and a functioning economy, even in this kind of situation, is so fundamentally important to people's livelihoods, to businesses, etc., that I think we do all we can to keep them up and running. They are they are key uh, to to society and how society functions effectively so personally I can't see them shutting markets down and I don't know what kind of ripple effect that would have Uh, it's obviously going to be pretty serious and I think there lies the the challenge for if you're looking at this from a central bank perspective from, from from a bank perspective what happens if you shut markets down what markets do you shut down? Are you selective on the markets that you, that you do shut down? Do you shut down certain products, asset classes? Does it all get shut down? I don't know how that works. I don't know how that affects the underlying real real economy. We still need a flow of of goods. Obviously, the flow of services, given everyone's shutting their borders down, is is restricted somewhat. But we still need good flow, goods flowing when they're shutting down the borders and they're and they're grounding airlines, they're not doing it for for goods, they're doing it for people. No. So I think as long as that kind of stuff's running, surely you need markets open. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I look at it and think, you know, we should let the market set the price to reflect what it is. Um, mm-hmm. I guess if markets become dysfunctional, that's why we have kill switches. Maybe what we need to do is get some sort of leadership from the authority saying, you know, if we hit certain thresholds, then we think we need it. We need the market to put in a self-imposed kill switch and say, right, enough is enough. But generally speaking, I, yeah, I guess the other point is we've had some, we've had the shock to the system that is um, the realization that there's the coronavirus is going to have a long-term impact. We've had the shock to the system with the oil price collapse. Um, we've had massive volatility in excess markets. And if you look at the FX market, it's actually worked. You know, I mean, I've spoken to a few people who've had algo executions go a bit wrong. And I've also spoken to a couple of people who had algo executions go brilliantly well. They just capture spread all the way down in the move. It's the old adage of liquidity, you get as much time as you like when you're wrong. But it's like, if as long as they're working, I don't see why there should be an issue. I guess, you know, the point of if we do hit full capitulation, that could be a challenge. Um, I don't know. I mean, before we got to that stage, I would say surely the idea is we sort of imposed, and we go back to your original point here, we go back to imposing some sort of throttle on the market. Because if you slow things down a bit, it does give people time to collect the data to make sure that their systems are working every okay. Um, and then just carry on regardless. It might mean that somebody you know, is a bit slower getting the price. Well, so what? I mean, if you need, if you need to sell, if you're a hedger, for instance, and you need to sell, is it going to matter if you're going to sell five pips lower than when you started? It shouldn't do. And if you're a speculator, you've missed five pips. Well, sorry. As, you know, I think you made a very, very good point there around why does the foreign exchange market exist? It exists for the real economy. We're not just there for the speculators. Yeah, they're an important part of the world, but you know, it's about functioning that market, you know, making sure the market functions for that economic segment, isn't it? So I totally agree with you on that one. Um, I guess then to close out, Rob, how do you think this plays out in terms of longer-term market structures? I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the spot here and ask for a prediction, but for instance, do you think that this episode will be probably the final tick in the in the doubters box around e-systems and the benefit of automation in markets? I think so, yeah. I think that if you if you have a look at a situation like this, it it it, it definitely weighs to, to the to that argument that you know if you were you can you imagine the carnage if we were still in a world of a hundred percent open outcry markets in this kind of situation when we're going in yeah. potentially lockdown stuff like that that is when you would have to shut markets down. Like, you know, at some point they would have had to say back in the day, right, the, the life, the life floor is closed. You know, you can't yeah. socially distance yourself in an environment like that. So I think from a practicality point of view, you're not as reliant on your human resource. And as well, it does just make monitoring even easier. So I think this potentially, you know, if, if, if we look back, in a few years' time, I think that although I don't want to say it's, it's a nail in the coffin for anything because there's still challenges out there for yeah. the tail of some of these products, of, you know, to, to converting them to E from a, from a voice world. The, yeah. the bulk has already gone to E. We're dealing with the, the challenge of the tail. 
But I do think this potentially accelerates this process because at the end of all this, mm. people will look and say, right, what went right? What went wrong? What, what could we do better next time? Where were the main challenges? Okay, you know, we put a lot of time and resource into working out how to deal with a problem around this kind of product that was very, very voice driven, but actually it's such a small profit center for our business and such a small product set for our clients that really is that the best use of our time and money. So either they convert it to E or even potentially exit that business, right? So I do think this will have a long-term effect. Yeah. Initially, you know, it's kind of let's get out of the woods and then people can actually review. People may even review their BCP sites because a number of companies' BCP sites are not that far apart. Because, like I say, if you think a bomb's going to go off, you think a bomb is, you know, it takes out potentially a couple of streets. It doesn't take out the whole of London or Greater London. So people may have a site in Canary Wharf and then one over the other side of London in the, in the city, for example. Well, does this make them review those plans? Do you kind of say, all right, well, we'll have a site in Canary Wharf and then we'll have one uh, in Oxford or Northampton or whatever? So if we get something that wipes out the whole London, I, think, I don't think we worry about markets anyway, do we? <laughs> I think the key to me is like getting, I think getting the, um, the automation thing is we've got to make sure that we, the, the manual traders currently, and they're playing a vitally important role, like those people willing to actually put some risk on the table, that they become comfortable with how these systems handle their risk. If we do that, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you. I think that'll absolutely be the, the way we go forward, and this will be. Uh, a justification um, on which note I guess we'll um, we'll end up there um, Rob thanks very much for joining the podcast again really good to talk to you interesting as ever um, to our listeners thanks very much for listening and um, have a good week and hopefully everything goes well in your world and um, we'll be back next week thanks for listening <laughs>